On Thursday, we bought a building. So we are now um, the proud owners as a church of uh, located at 37th and Federal. Um, if you haven't been by to see it, we'd love for you to drive by and see it. Um, I, I want to begin some announcements about that by saying this changes nothing. <laughs> uh, we, we still exist as a community um, to gather to worship Jesus, um, to, to exist as disciples who are being transformed by the gospel, who are living for the glory of God and the good of our city. So, so, so nothing changed this week about that. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. Um, that's why um, we make every decision that we make. It's, it's to fuel that mission, that vision of what we are as a, as a church. Um, so in that sense, nothing's changed. Um, the, the, the only thing that has changed is that God's given us um, uh, a really profound resource to use to that end. And, and so um, we begin... Uh, the long work of rehabbing this building and making this building our own and um, utilizing this building so that it can best serve that mission and that vision. Um, and so uh, if the building burns down tomorrow, nothing changes. Um, if, if whatever else we do, it's to serve that end. Um, and so to get started on that, on Saturday will be our first work day. And we need as many of you there as possible. There's tons of stuff to clean out. There's tons of stuff to paint. Um, if you are a carpenter, we need you. Um, we, we have a whole project list that Dan has been working on for months now um, that he is um, really, really excited to show you on Saturday morning. So uh, we're going to have um, more information on the city of things that you can bring, times that you can show up. Um, we're basically going to go from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. this coming Saturday. If you can come for an hour, come for an hour. If you can come for all eight hours, come for all eight hours. Uh, we'll have pizza. We'll have snacks and we will work hard together. Sound good? So, you own a building. It's exciting. Um, second thing, uh, tonight Art Spano is going to be preaching for us. Um, <laughs> Art is, uh, um, I refer to him as our first guy over 50. Um, and so uh, he and Margie have been around the church for a while. Um, I love Art. I have breakfast with Art every other week and he's been a profound encouragement to me. Um, and brother to me uh, since, since we started the church. Um, one of the things that we like to do, rather than um, you having to sit out there and hear me yell at you every week, um, is that qualified men, we like to see um, come in the pulpit and deliver the word of God to you and preach the word of God to you. And, and so this week, Art's going to do it. And I think three weeks, Nick is going to do it. Um, particularly in the summer, we like, to, we like to see a healthy number of voices up here for you to hear. So um, I'm going to pray for Art and then I'm going to read the text, and then Art's going to come up here. Sound good? You own a building. Okay. <laughs> so, Lord, uh, first we give thanks um, for your kindness, for your faithfulness to us, um, that, that you moved in the hearts of your people to give, um, to give generously, to provide for us way before um, we, we ever expected to a, a place to call home, a place to um, work out of, to serve our city and to serve our neighborhoods. And so, God, um, I pray right now for wisdom that you would uh, give us wisdom on how to use it well, that it wouldn't ever, 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 would never be a distraction from the, the primary, the, the, the whole thing that you've called us to in this city. Rather, God, it would be a tool used for your name, for your glory, to make disciples, to gather and worship Jesus in, um, that it would serve our children well, that it would serve our families well, that it would serve um, everything we do to serve that mission. But it would never distract. 
So God, help us to be faithful with that property. God, all the resources necessary um, from paint to money um, to just good decision-making on design and, and how the things should be set up. Lord, I, I pray that you'd give all of those things to it to us and provide it in abundance. But we give thanks to you. And God, now I just pray for my brother Art, Lord. I pray that he would speak faithfully. Um, God, that you, deliver, that, that you would deliver your word through Art. That you'd be faithful to the text. That, that you would give him illustrations. You'd give him words and sentences and, and, and pictures to, to use um, to deliver to us not his own ideas, not, not his best thoughts, but God, um, that he'd make clearer and clearer and clearer to us the meaning of Psalm 9. And that God, that we would worship in the spirit of Psalm 9 as we leave here. So, so God, faithfully deliver your word through your faithful servant and help us to hear it and be transformed by it. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. So if you're turning your Bibles to Psalm chapter 9, we will begin reading. If you've been here for a while, you'll, you'll know that um, after the scriptures are read, the reader generally says um, at the end, always says at the end of this, um, this is the word of God, this is the word of the Lord. Um, and the people respond, thanks be to God. Um, the reason we do that is as a reminder, every time we read the scriptures, that, that what we're reading is not merely another book, but we believe that these, this book is God's word, that, that God speaks um, in and through his word, and we want to acknowledge that what we just heard wasn't just a reader, wasn't just a text, but God himself speaking to us. Um, so we will uh, continue that tradition tonight. Psalm chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I said nine. I met Psalm chapter eight. I looked at the length of nine and decided I didn't want to read it. So we're reading Psalm chapter eight, but we'll still give thanks to God that it's his word. All right, are you ready? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes, babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. And I'm glad he uh, read Psalm 8 instead of Psalm 9 also. <laughs> because uh, I spent my time preparing to preach on Psalm 8. Good. Uh, join me while I pray. Uh, Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would uh, fill me with your presence and that you would guide my words. We pray that you would cause your uh, preached word to be effective in accomplishing your purposes among us, of uh, judging the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, and teaching us and rebuking us and correcting us and instructing us in righteousness so that we might be thoroughly prepared for every good work. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, do you remember the first time you saw the Colorado Rockies? And I'm not talking about the baseball team. I'm talking about the mountains. And this might make a lot more sense to those of you who are natives. But uh, how about the first time you ever summited a 14,000-foot peak and stood at the top 
like I did, even though I've lived around here for 50-some years, stood at the top with a hundred and so uh, other people and looked uh, at the vistas all around me, 360 degrees of the tops of other mountains. Uh, I was awed. It uh, took my breath away in more than one way. But it, uh, it reminded me of this psalm in the sense that uh, as we look at this psalm today, um, we hear from David who recognizes in this psalm that God is a great God. But also at the same time, uh, David, in spite of the fact that he was very eloquent of speech, uh, we've heard a lot of his psalms the last few weeks, uh, but David, I don't think, even had the words to capture how great God was. So uh, what we're going to do today is look at Psalm 8, which is a wonderful, wonderful worship psalm. And hopefully at the uh, end of my preaching, we'll have a greater for appreciation for God's greatness, but we'll also be humbled by the fact that such a great God would have an interest in you and I and would go to such lengths to redeem us to himself. So let's look at the psalm starting with verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Notice, first of all, that David addresses the Lord using his covenant name. Uh, he is the covenant God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And as was mentioned earlier, he's the God who promised to each of these patriarchs that he was going to bless the world, that he was going to bless people from every nation and from every tribe and from every language through Abraham's offspring. And Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that that offspring was Jesus Christ. So the Lord that David's talking about is the Lord who makes promises and keeps promises. And you can see there that uh, he is also David's Lord. And I find this rather amazing. Uh, David was probably the most powerful person on earth at this time. Uh, and it would be real easy to forget that he served as a king subject to the king, uh, God. And yet David acknowledged during this psalm, uh, on behalf of himself, on behalf of other people, that the covenant God of the universe was also his Lord. And as Galatians 3, 7 through 9 says, uh, he can also be the Lord of you and I if we have the faith of Abraham. Second, we notice that uh, David describes God's name as majestic. Uh, seems to me that majestic is sort of a catchphrase for a lot of different things. It speaks of uh, nobility, it speaks of being lofty, it speaks of being grand. Um, but it's a word that David uses to describe God's name. And when we talk about God's name in this context, we're not just talking about uh, the way we use a name in terms of uh, personal identification of someone or something, as in, uh, I'm Art, and there's Sean, and there's Brian glaring at me. He's not actually glaring at me. But instead, uh, when David talks about God's name, he is talking about uh, his name being descriptive of God, that his uh, name is the knowledge of God's character and his perfections as he has revealed them to us in the Scriptures. 
Um, now, there are a bunch of different ways that uh, name is used in the scriptures, and I'm going to mention just three different ways, and some of these are interchangeable, but uh, let me just talk about how they reveal exactly who God is to us. Uh, one of the names by which God has revealed himself in the scriptures is the Alpha. Uh, that means he's the beginning. That means before he ever created anything at all, he was. Or he calls himself also the Omega. And the Christ, the Almighty, Emmanuel, God with us, the Root of David, the Savior, all kinds of names. But another way in which a name is used in the scripture is to uh, provoke us to think of a particular image. For instance, think along with me as I mention these names. Uh, Jesus is the Lamb, the spotless Lamb, who was uh, died for our sins. Uh, he is a shepherd. Think about what a shepherd does. A shepherd guides his people, sheep in this case. A shepherd takes care of his people. A shepherd leads them to food and water. A shepherd protects them from uh, enemies, whether those be external enemies or even within the church. He protects us from those who are not speaking the truth. He's also a father. And he's a rock. He's stable. He's fixed. He's not moved. He's a king, the king. He rules over us. And he's a legislator. He's given us laws. He's also a husband, and he's light. He disperses darkness. He searches the thoughts and motives of people's hearts. Uh, all in all, the Bible uses over a hundred different names to describe God's name and his perfections. Uh, and the third way he does that is through uh, the name, the third thing a name identifies is God's attributes. Um, listen to these also. He is jealous. He's jealous that you praise him and not others who hold themselves up to be God's. He's holy, otherly apart from us. And he's independent. He's without need of anything outside of himself, whether that be advice or perspective or food or even praise. And he's immutable, which means that there's no shadow of turning in him. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, which I find a great comfort, and you should find a great comfort also in the fact that he is then totally faithful and totally reliable. He is a God who makes promises, and he's also a God who keeps his promises. Given all these names that describe God and give us images of God, that's exactly why Psalm 148.13 says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above heaven and earth. And Psalm 76, 4 describes God as more majestic than mountains full of prey. What do you think of that, you hunters? And Isaiah 40, 18 says, to whom will you compare God? Well, obviously, everyone can be compared to God, but no one can measure up to God. And as verse 1 says, God's majestic name fills the earth. As a matter of fact, even the earth and the heavens are too small to contain his glory, the manifestations, again, of his character and perfection. 
So God has set, he's put his glory above the earth and above the heavens. Now, when we use the word glory in this verse, I'm reminded of the fact that uh, life is not about you and I, but it's about God. It's not about us, it's about God's glory. And listen as I go over some of these verses that point that out. In Exodus, we're told that the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt and Pharaoh were for the purpose of getting glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and that the Egyptians might know that he was the Lord. And in fact, they did. Uh, Matthew 5.16 tells us that all of our good works, which God created in advance for us to do, aren't for our glory, but are for God's glory. And the Gospels, tells us, the Gospels tell us that all the various miracles that Christ did were for the purpose of manifesting his glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 reminds us that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we should do it all, not for ourselves, but for God's glory. And finally, Ephesians 1.12 reminds us that even our being saved from our sins is for the purpose of God's glory. Everything exists, not for ourselves, but for God's glory. And Romans 1, 19 through 20, tells us that no one, not a single person from the creation of the world, can claim to not be aware of God and his glory. Listen to these verses. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that all are without excuse. Everyone who has ever lived since Adam was created knows enough about God that they stand condemned if they do not recognize him as God. And the scriptures also tell us in Romans uh, 121, that the proper response to knowing what we do about God is to honor him, or a better word for that would be to worship him and also to give thanks to him. Verse 2 reads, Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So in verse 2 we see, that not everyone has responded to what may be known about God through what he has created by worshiping him and giving thanks to him. As a matter of fact, God does have enemies, and he does have foes, and these are the people who have not responded to him in that way. Uh, how can that be? It's true because there's absolutely no neutrality regarding God. Either he is your Lord, like he's David's Lord, or you are his enemy. Listen to what uh, Romans 1, 21 through 25 says about those who haven't responded to God by worshiping him and giving him thanks. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie 
and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So you may not have a wooden idol. You may not have a metal idol. But if you are not worshiping God and giving thanks to him, uh, you're worshiping something else, whether that would be your comfort or riches or recognition or the response of other people or you fill in the blank. But the one thing that is uh, true is that you have given up worshiping God and you are worshiping yourself. But verse 2 of this psalm says that God has taught even children and infants to tell of his strength, just silent, thus silencing his enemies and all who oppose him. And we see this in Matthew 21:16, where Jesus quotes verse 2 of Psalm 8. Let me set up the situation. Jesus had just been in the temple. He'd overturned the money changers' tables, uh, and he had cleansed it of everyone who wanted to make the temple a den of robbers. And later on, as he was still in the temple... Uh, blind people and lame people came to him to be uh, healed. And then this is what verses 15 through 16 of Matthew 21 go on to say. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So the chief priests and the scribes were indignant. Why? Because children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, Hosanna means, O save. So their crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, was a recognition that Jesus could save them that he was the Davidic Messiah who would come to save them from his enemies. And this is the same phrase that the crowds had yelled at Jesus when he uh, came into Jerusalem, uh, his triumphal entry on what we now call Palm Sunday. Uh, so why were they indignant? Because here we have a lowly carpenter, an outsider, receiving praise when uh, they wanted the praise and admiration for themselves. So God even uses the weakest of people, and I'm talking about infants, those who can't uh, do anything to help themselves, let alone help other people, to uh, reveal himself to the world. And in Matthew 11, Jesus even thanks the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that he has not revealed his message of the kingdom of heaven, that's the gospel, to those who are wise and understanding, wise and understanding in their own eyes and in the eyes of the world, but instead he has revealed the gospel message to little children, some who are little, literally little children and some who are like little children in that they have humble hearts and they know that they have absolutely nothing that they can bring to God to justify themselves. Listen to what verses uh, 18 through 29 of 1 Corinthians say. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, and this applies to us too, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that's right. All of us were saved by grace, the unmerited favor that God has shown to us in Christ, and none of us have, have any basis for boasting before God. So keep it in mind what David said earlier, that God's glory eclipses even the heavens. Listen to what verse 3 says. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So two activities I really enjoy a lot are tent camping and fly fishing. And I particularly like summer because in the summer I get to combine the two. So what do I like about camping? Well, I love to get out of town, out of the heat, out of the congestion, up into the mountains where there's lots of green, uh, where there's lots of dirt, where there's lots of blue sky. Uh, I love to make fires. I love to uh, cook food over a campfire. It always seems to taste better that way. Uh, I love in the evening to uh, roast marshmallows over a fire. Perfect marshmallows, even though I don't eat very many of them. And I love to sit in front of the fire as it gets uh, dark and cook on my front side and uh, freeze on my backside. I love to sleep in a sleeping bag, uh, all warm, and breathe cold, cool air. But one of the things that I most like about camping, uh, one of the things I most look forward to is uh, staying up really late or better yet, even getting up in the middle of the night, which sometimes you have to do at my age, and going outside to a clearing and uh, on a clear night without the moon and without clouds, looking up into the sky and seeing all of the stars. Uh, and according to the resources that I looked at, uh, the naked human eye can see on a cloudless and uh, moonless night about 3,000 stars. And I've always remembered, ever since I've become a Christian, that uh, God made all of those stars, and that uh, even though God made all of those stars, and he knows them each by name, that he's mindful of me. And it is an absolutely amazing thing. Uh, and did you guys know that God created, remember you can only see about 3,000 stars, that he created, by latest estimates, three septillion stars? That means he created three, three followed by 24 zeros, that many stars. And Isaiah 40, 26 says, Lift up your eyes on high and see, 
Who created these stars? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. That's not just 3,000. That's three septillion. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So not only is God named each star, which I find utterly amazing, but as verse 3 says, he set each in its place so that there's order in the universe and things are operating exactly as they are designed to work by God. And not only did he create the moon and the stars, as the psalm tells us, but he uh, providentially preserves and governs them so that we have day and night, days so we can work and have fun, nights so that we can get needed rest, so that we have seasons so that we can, in Colorado anyway, ski and snowboard, or we can uh, climb 14ers, uh, so that farmers know when to plant and when to harvest, so that you know when to turn on your sprinkler system and when to shut it down at the end of the season so that it doesn't freeze. Uh, and he's even created the stars so that uh, seafarers and hunters and hikers can actually navigate without instrumentation, all so that his purposes might be accomplished. And now we can understand why David said, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. In light of God's creation and his provident care for all that he has created, all three septillion stars, each of which he knows by name, uh, David goes on to say, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And this really isn't a question of God, but it's more a statement of astonishment. David is astonished that God, who created everything and maintains everything, could be interested in him, a man. How could God, who owns the God who owns the heavens and sovereignly directs everything in the universe from the smallest quark to the biggest gallery, how could he possibly be mindful of me and mindful of you? And the word mindful in this verse doesn't just mean that you're aware of something. It means that God shows consideration for what he is mindful for. So for instance, you might have a neighbor and you can be mindful of your neighbor, but uh, being considerate of them means that you don't get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and mow your lawn, nor do you let your dog bark all night. And it means that if your neighbor needs help uh, changing their light bulbs or uh, removing snow from their walks, guess what you do? You actually do that. And God is mindful of us. He shows consideration to us. Um, and caring for someone literally means that you attend to them, and it also implies uh, action. And I think a good example of this is uh, what they used to do in the Old Testament. If you raised uh, grain and you had standing grain in your field, uh, instead of uh, harvesting all of the grain, you would leave the corners of your field with standing grain, and you would also leave the borders of your field with uh, standing grain. And the reason that you did that is because you cared for those who were sojourners, those who were poor, those who were widows, those who were orphans. In this way, they could come and they could glean all that grain from the field, and they would go ahead and have food. So your care was actually turned into action on their behalf. It means a lot more than just making a mental note about how tough life is for certain people or feeling sorry for someone. 
Verse 4 says that God is considered of those he has created, and he's actively involved in meeting their needs. And it isn't just because he needs their fellowship and praise, but it's because he wants to be involved in their lives. As Matt Chandler put it, we are not created, we were not created as some missing link in God's emotional experience. For God is totally sufficient in himself, the Trinity. And if you think about it, I am comforted, and you ought to be comforted by the fact that the goodness that God shows to us isn't because he feels sorry for us and that he needs for his own well-being to show us goodness, but it's because he wants to show us goodness. Verse 5 goes on to say, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And what this means is God made man a little while, and that's what a little lower means, lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor, which is direct language directly from the account of man's creation in Genesis 1, 26 through 29. So I'm going to read those to you. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. So God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And God cared for Adam. He provided the fruit of every tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God uh, even provided Adam with a helper fit for him, a woman, Eve. And to demonstrate his dominion over all that he had made, God brought him every living creature that he had formed out of the ground to name. God gave man glory and honor by creating him in his image and appointing him to have dominion over the earth and everything that he had made. Uh, for his own, for God's glory, and subject only to himself, that is God. But we all know what happened shortly thereafter. Um, even though God had commanded Adam that he could eat from every tree in the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, Adam ate from that tree. And God had warned him beforehand that if he did, he would surely die. Uh, in his rebellion against God, Adam had decided that he didn't want to be ruled by the king of the universe, but he wanted to be his own king. He decided that God's glory wasn't enough for him. He was interested in his own glory. In response to Adam's rebellion, God did not utterly destroy him, which would have been a just thing to do and would have uh, precluded you being here this evening and me talking to you about Psalm 8, but instead, he kicked uh, Eve and Adam out of the garden and into the world that was going to become harsh because of their sin. As a matter of fact, Romans 8.23 says that not only those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, and that's those who are trusting in Jesus for our salvation, but creation itself metaphorically groans inwardly with us as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. All of God's creation works to be redeemed 
from the effects of sin. And as a, as a result of their rebellion, Adam, Adam and Eve became spiritually dead, and they introduced physical death into the world. So that brings us to where we are today. Romans 5 tells us that because of Adam's sin, all of us are sinners and under condemnation. As a matter of fact, we're born that way. And Ephesians 2 tells us that we are by nature children of God's wrath. There we are again. You're either with God or you're his enemy. And by nature, all of us are children of God's wrath. Yet God, in spite of our rebellious natures, is still mindful of us and still cares for us, just like he did before sin entered the world. And in Hebrews, we get a description of what this mindfulness and care looks like. In Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 8, the author of Hebrews quotes verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 8, and in verse 9, he applies these verses to Jesus. Listen as I read verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone who believes in him. Our triune God, in his infinite wisdom, has determined from eternity that Jesus, the second Adam, would die on the cross to redeem us to himself and reconcile us to the Father. And he would uh, restore all that he had made, uh, not as man independent of God, but as man subject to God and acting for God's glory. So God has justified us in Christ, and he is currently sanctifying us in the Holy Spirit so that we're conforming to the image of uh, Christ and are more greatly reflecting uh, God's glory day after day. As Matt Chandler puts it in the explicit gospel, God loves his own glory, and fixing us so that we reflect his glory gives him glory. Let me say that again. God loves his own glory, and fixing us so that we reflect his glory gives him glory. And that's exactly what God did for us in Christ. He fixed us by saving us from sin. And even though at present we don't see everything in subjection to Christ, as uh, Hebrews 2.8 reminds us, the same Jesus is going to appear again at the end of the age, and he's going to judge the living and the dead and completely destroy the devil who has the power of death. And those who belong to Christ will then live with God forever and reign in new resurrected bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. Everything that was originally created good but then was brought under bondage because of sin will be restored to a position of glory and honor under Christ. So we've come full circle. God created man in his image. God gave him dominion over the earth and everything that he had made, and God said it was good. Man responded to God by disobeying him, by rebelling against him, and uh, man got kicked out of the garden. Man got called uh, spiritually dead. And yet God did not give up showing, being mindful of us or showing care to us, but instead he sent his only son, Jesus, to live, 
and to die on the cross for our sins and to save us and conquer sin and death. And Jesus now uh, has risen from the dead and he's ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father where he reigns as prophet, priest, and king. And he's going to come again at the end of the age and restore everything to its rightful place where man again will reign with Christ, subject only to God, and reign only for God's glory. So at this point in time, uh, we're going to remember what Christ has done for us in his life and in his death and in his resurrection by celebrating communion. Uh, so before I, we do that, uh, bow your heads and pray with me. Um, dear Father, we thank you so, so much that you, the creator of everything, who made um, everything from where there was nothing before, who created uh, three septillion stars and created man in your image. We thank you that you are mindful of man and that you care for man and that you, have, you care for him so much that you sent your only begotten son to earth to live, uh, to live a life without sin and to suffer without sinning and then to suffer on the cross to pay for the sins of those who put their trust in him. We thank you that uh, you have uh, raised Christ from the dead and that you have accepted his sacrifice on our behalf as a substitute. Uh, we thank you that he reigns now in heaven at your right hand, that he has finished the work of redemption, and that in your great plan he will come again at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead. And we look forward to this opportunity to remember what Christ has done uh, on our behalf. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, if you are a person who has put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and your salvation, I invite you to come forward and to dip the bread uh, in the wine uh, and remember that Christ uh, lived and died on the cross and was raised from the dead uh, to save us from our sins. And if you aren't there, if you haven't put your uh, trust in Christ, but are still relying uh, on yourself or your, old, your own good works uh, to justify yourself before God, please read the two paragraphs that you see up on the uh, overhead. And uh, I pray, and I know everyone else here prays, that uh, God will open your mind to the light of the gospel and that you will turn to Christ, that you repent, repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, and you too will be able to join us, if not today, someday, in uh, celebrating what Christ has done for us. Come forth and eat. <laughs>